I'll start a new page with lyrics that don't need to rhyme. So I'm chasing one more line. I'm chasing one more line. Welcome to the Corpus Christi Songwriters Podcast. I'm Jimmy. I'm Jules. And uh, this is going to be a special, special episode because uh, this is going to be all about Jules. I've I've kidnapped him into my uh, my dining room area, and we're just going to talk about his music for an hour and see see where this conversation goes. He just released a brand new album, kind of a surprise record, like we didn't really know it was coming, and he just dropped it. So uh, I guess for anyone who hasn't followed you or doesn't know what the hell we're talking about, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us about the album. So, uh, my name is Jules. I write songs. I've been doing this a very long time, and uh, I go through phases with it. I always wanted to make albums, made a couple of them so far. And, uh, you know, I went to school for engineering. I uh, think a lot about how to make records. I moved to Nashville in pursuit of developing the skill set to make records. Um, and, you know, it was kind of a a concealed agenda of of figuring out how to write a song that I could, you know, stamp my name on as well. Because for a very long time, I didn't feel like I was that caliber of a writer to where my own yeah. tastes, like, uh, was even accepting of the material I was writing. I was always my biggest critic on that stuff. So, um, but yeah, so I, you know, I, I, when I say I go through phases with making records um, or making my own records, I, I mean to say that uh, the, the, album mountain time that i released back in 2018 i'd spent two years making that record and uh, i really wanted to one play a bunch of instruments and just you know call in a drummer and a bass player uh i just really needed and wanted since the time i was a kid to have a record where i played all the instruments um and i say all that because that two years is a long time to make a record um you know it's a lot of a lot of rough mixes a lot of a lot of evaluation, a lot of time to think about it. And, um, you know, ever since then, I've not really been into making long-term records. Uh, so if I spent two years on Mountain Time, I spent two days on Whiskey Clear. Uh, and when I say I went, th- I go through phases as well, another thing that I mean is that I really wanted to perfect Mountain Time in such a way that, like, I wouldn't walk away from that production without any regrets. And then once I had completed that project, I really felt like what scared me uh, and what I felt like I needed to release was a record of me simply performing, me in a room in an intimate environment, just a couple of guys locking eyes and making music. And so that's what this record was about. And that's part of why I held on to it for over four years or so and kind of did everything, including the artwork and album cover, all that stuff. And, uh, just did everything but didn't hit the red button, you know? Well, yeah, yeah that's uh, that's interesting. I, I find that I've been on a, a journey as well. You know, if you listen to some of my records I put out in uh, 2014, 2018, things like that, they're very, um, very produced, right? So yeah. tons of layers and, and just perfection. And even the Yashinimi records, we tried to pull that back a little bit, but even still, you know, our a Three Rivers record is is definitely a produced record, and I'm I find myself on a very similar journey now to where I you know going in the studio I really just want it to be about the voice about the 
about what's being said and the emotion behind it and leave the rest of it, you know, to the side. So it's really, I find that's what's interesting. Or I don't know if it's the growth as an artist or just where we are in the moment. Um, because I feel like there's more truth, I guess, in the small things. And that's what uh, the Whiskey Clear, it really does well is it explores those truths that some of us, you know, sometimes are afraid to to explore, but in a very um, succinct way. Oh, thank you. Thank you, dude. Um, yeah, man, it's uh, sticking on me, the produced versus uh, non-produced sort of uh, aspect for just a moment. I would say that, you know, our previous episode, I think it was with Libby Coke, we were talking about uh, uh, the, the way that today's contemporary artists are looking to create records that are smaller production uh, based on, you know, economic forces, based on the demand of frequency of releases coming from uh, contemporary consumers of music. Uh, it's resulting in these sort of stripped down records. Uh, and that can be really beautiful. Um, but I would say that like, the phase that I'm in now is I like just today I released a uh, a song that I created and programmed drums for and all that stuff uh, in my home. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's kind of the direction a lot of the stuff is going to. And uh, so as an artist, I'm always trying to do the thing that I fear. Right? I like that. I feel like you just have to just run towards that thing. And so for a while it was like making a record where I played all the instruments and kind of demonstrated that I was a multi-instrumentalist and that was mountain time. And then, you know, whiskey clear is like, can you just get in a room and can your performances pass for something that you stamp and, you know, uh, and, and release. Um, and, and so not entirely, but I do feel part of me now is like, can you create a fully produced song that is releasable from your desk? Mm -hmm. It's kind of where my head has somewhat been in the last few months, you know, have you, I, I, have you always been a self-produced artist or um, at least in the last few years, that seems mm. to be what you've been doing, right? Well, you know, I have to say that like my friend Todd Levine in upstate New York is uh, a guy that, you know, it, it's it's a difficult thing to, that I feel like. And there's a lot of ego for me. And speaking to my experience, man, when you ask me if I've always been self-produced, um, I have always been self-producing myself, but I know that I require a producer. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that is because, A, at a certain point, like, I just, I don't, I want to be an artist. I don't want to edit stuff. I don't want to hit the record button. I don't want to think in terms of Pro Tools keyboard shortcuts. And I certainly, that part of me looks for engineers who don't use Pro Tools because I just don't even want to have the option to sit down and take over editing or comp something. I just don't want to take my mind out of where it rests naturally as an artist and place it into a more technical, um, even though my whole life I've kind of tried to curate the capacity to be able to seamlessly switch between technical and artistic sensibilities. Um, so yeah, I found my friend Todd in upstate New York and that was uh, to his credit, man. This guy really, he, I used to have coffee every day uh, and work from this little coffee shop in upstate New York and he would come through and talk to me. And I was like, I need to make a record. And he's like, well, you know, I need to, I, I he has also manufactures gear, his um, company's called Handsome Audio. And he needed a, to make a record as a guinea pig to use this new box that he had created uh, with his company. 
Uh, so we we both mutually needed stuff and came together, and it was a really beautiful process that resulted in both Mountain Time and Whiskey Clear. Um, but it took a great deal of, I mean, I always tell artists when they entrust me with their project, thank you for entrusting me with your project. And I do that because I learned to entrust Todd. And there's not a whole lot of, like, I'm very musically skeptical in a, in a way. And it's not to anyone's detriment or that I think low of other sensibilities. It's just, it's, it's weird that I... I just have a lot of trust issues wrapped up in like the original scope of how I hear things and, and, and the vision for, and so it's a big deal to trust somebody like that. And so when you ask me if I've always been self-produced in a way, it's like, I'll, I, I'm probably always will be, but I do know that like collaboration in terms of a, of having a producer has also taught me to be a, a co-producer. Um, yeah, like a co-conspirator. Yeah. Like I, I get along really well in that dynamic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've been in the studio with Mason Shirley for years, you know, if, as a, me as a solo artist and then with Yash and Yemi going in and all our stuff there. He, Mason's one of my, one of the best co-producers I've ever worked with. Yes, yeah. he'll take your ideas and take them to the next level. Or if he comes with an idea and it's just the collaboration. Mm -hmm. I just love collaboration. You know, I love it in hiking, yeah. I love it in, in music. And so yeah, that's 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 wonderful that you have somebody uh, that you can do that with. You can a co conspiracy conspirator if you Yeah, mean. man. Uh you know, it's it's you know, I when I was at the symposium, Mason was on stage at House of Rock and, and I asked a question about like how uh you know, how as an engineer you show up as your best self to get the best performances out of the artists and stuff, you know, and and I, and I like to think of producing now as kind of a bedside manner um, because, you know, it, it's, you handle artists the way you handle artists as a producer until you are an artist and then you, you are handled by a producer and you're either handled well and you take notes on how they, how you were handled versus like, the experience I've been in studios with engineers where they're just like, I'm trying to cut like a slide pleat, a slide piece and they're trying to take me measure by measure going so quickly mm -hmm. uh, in this sort of hazard way of, you know, butchering whatever performance might be there. Right. So like both extremes are, you know, you want the guy that handles you well, you know, and you want to learn from that and become a better collaborator, you know, through that process. Exactly. So Mountain Time was the the more produced record. Yeah. Um, but I remember when I went to your um, CD release party or album release party of Whiskey Clear, and you mentioned that this is, you know, kind of represents a chapter in your life. Um, I guess you started working on it four years ago. Um, that you weren't so Whiskey Clear, if you will. I was not. So um, tell me about that journey and then what this album means to you. Well, you know... Uh... When I released Mountain Time, I kind of dropped out of society for a couple months. Uh, I didn't go out. I, uh, I didn't, I, you know, I kind of withdrew. Um, and these songs came out of there. Um, and, and part of the reason why I drew, withdrew was, was alcohol. But, um, you know, when you spend two years of your life making a record and constantly planning on that, and constantly thinking into and towards and uh, it occupies a very wide footprint in your in your mind. Um, so truthfully, when I released Mountain Time, 
I had spent so much time thinking of those songs. And I had spent so much time critically listening to those songs um, that I, I, what are you supposed to do after you make a record? You go support that record. You go tour. You know, I had a band together. Uh, I had a great bass player named Colin Almquist and uh, another one named mm-hmm. uh, yeah, player. and Allison Damrath, man. Um, yeah, I mean, I had I had great bass players um, and. Uh, yeah, and but I just couldn't do it, man. I couldn't, um, and it's not the songs that I didn't like them. I still play those songs now, but like I, I just could. I I wanted to write because I, I don't think I can really exist without planning towards the composition or completion of albums. Um, and like right now, I've got three or so that I'm writing into uh, in my in my mind. Uh, and at the time, so for Whiskey Clear, man, uh, I. That era in my life was spent with uh, spent with a bottle at my coffee table, and I started to try to find whatever sort of cowboy wisdom was available, mm-hmm. uh, whatever sort of pithy aphorism, aphorisms that might come as a brutal truth, um, and I started thinking about how. As a writer, you should be talking about the the truths that one knows in one's soul to be true, um, and the sort of answers to questions that we always know but are really just afraid to to broach the topic of. Um, and you know, and I started thinking about how like there are relationships that you have in this life, and how people come around for seasons and. And you know, like that's that's kind of something that I've always fought against in a way. I feel like if you value a person in your life, you must also care after the possibility of them drifting away from you. And others would say, yeah, people drift away from you, and if they come back, it's meant to be. And it's like, no, 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 no. You got to care after and maintain because you only get these people once. They they come in seasons, sort of thing. You know, um, you know, I was also living in upstate New York during this whole time, and there there were plenty of winters that I had gone through where. Uh, it was like, what the hell am I doing in upstate New York, man? I could be on a beach here in Corpus. Um, and I started to write into not just like missing home, but, but the, the attrition of, of living uh, on the road in a way. And so like songs like Heart of Stone uh, came out of like just feeling like a scar tissue over my own heart, you know, and, and imagining, uh, you know, the way one feels being let down by love time and time again. Anyway, so there was a there was a lot of somber alcoholism going on at this point, man. Right, uh, and uh, and I just tried to take whatever I could from those thoughts. Um, I will say that, like you know, I lived alone for like seven years in upstate New York, and uh, and during that time, you know, when you live alone, it's an interesting thing. A lot of people don't look forward to living alone, and uh, a lot of people, when they sit on their couch and it's quiet and it's just them and their thoughts and the void creeps in, they, they, they get up and they vacuum the rug or something. And uh, I don't. I kind of just sit there and I listen to that, as frightening as it might be. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is this thing trying to tell me? You know, where is this anxiety coming from? And uh, if you listen, it'll speak to you. Uh, and some of that came from, from Whiskey Sphere, you know. Um, some of that, I mean, some of that came turned into whiskey clear, I would say. Um, you know, it's, it's been a long time since I recorded these tracks, 
but going in there was a, uh, you know, going in there was like just, it was kind of terrifying because it was, there's no overdubs. Uh, these are all rough mixes that I, we never actually sat down and like mixed what was there. A lot of that guitar tone is coming from my PA cabinet mic'd up. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's just John and me in a room is what it is. Um, that's all it is. And, and well, yeah, I mean, there's not even a whole, I mean, the verb that's there is kind of the verb that was chosen as the scratch verb, you know, so there's, there's warts on this record that are, that I, that I wanted because yeah. I wish to release a record that was imperfect, that was human. And that was, uh, more just like, here's like a, a run off a lathe or something than something polished to, to, and packaged, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Ty Dietz talked about that a lot when he recorded his record um, years ago. Um, he talked about, you know, leaving the wood in it where it's not, you know, not so plastic. Or you, you can just you hear all the little the, the warts, like you say, or whatever. I wouldn't call them warts, you know. Some of them are happy accidents. Some of them, you know, oh, that one gets off the cliff a little bit there. You know, the little things like that. But that's what it, you can hear it breathe, right? So. Yeah. And that's, I, those are my favorite records. And yeah, I think Whiskey Clear does a great job at that. Even if they were just mixes that you, uh, rough mixes that you had and then go back in, it, there's a, you know, a, a live energy, a, a live feel that this, I guess, makes the record so good. So I appreciate you sharing it for sure. Um, I want to know. I basically, I, I know we want to talk about the record. Yeah, yeah. But I want to, I want to talk about totally. your amazing um, release party because I still, thank you, still have some of that shit in my head. Of when, I mean, you started it, the release party for Whiskey Clear. You started it with songs that aren't even on Whiskey Clear. You did like four or five songs, if not more, I think, that were brand new that you had just been writing like that week or those last couple of weeks. And in between those, you did this poetry reading, mm. and um, I've been, you know, we've been talking about this. How in between songs, some of us, you know, tell jokes, and me specifically, tell I tell dad dad jokes. Um, but in between, in between your songs, there were no jokes. There are these even like the hard songs, and then harder poetry, if you will, mm. subject matter. And then as you delivered it, you were looking everyone directly into their soul. And I went home that night. I was like fuck did I just witness? And so what, what inspired that, that, that performance? Cause it was, it was planned. You, you knew exactly what you wanted to deliver to the audience. You knew how you wanted to frame this whole thing. And you, and you had an idea of what the, what you want to send the audience away with when they leave. So, uh, what, what, <laughs> what inspired all that? Well, um, you know, I'll just, to be, Totally truthful, man. I've had some crazy shit going on in my life lately. Um, you know, uh, and when I say crazy, it's like, you know, it's just, it's not even stuff I can even mention, man, uh, here on the podcast. And that's part of, um, you know, people tell me I have like a resting grit face. And a lot of that, that kind of stuff comes from a history of living in a, in a family that's not the most healthy or functional, uh, and so there was, there was an incident and, and, uh, 
And you know, man, what what it what it really came down to was like I was for a few, you know, days there, I was living kind of in a fight or flight, feeling very tense, a lot of anxiety. And uh, you know, the, who I am and what I do, I feel like the poetry, the songs, the guitar playing, the vulnerability, the the need to go out and perform to remind myself of who I am, all this stuff stems out of like a trauma coping process, you know? I feel like I was a goth kid that was into metal with a lot of anger uh, growing up. And then about 16, I finally got an acoustic guitar and, you know, the way I dressed, the way I spoke, the, my view and outlook on the world, everything shifted to something more positive and with the possibility of beauty. Um, but during January, I was, I was really, really in a dark place. Now I'm known for making some dark subject matter music. I, I feel like I try, I've tried to write positive stuff. I've tried to write stuff that like could leave someone feeling, you know, like in a way that like a secular spiritual song might leave someone feeling uplifted in a way, you know, um, and it's, I'm not saying that my stuff doesn't uplift, but the 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 things that I write into are are somewhat sorted, um, and that kind of kicked that whole thing into overdrive. And and I and you know I started to see a lot of like I don't know if you if ever other writers have had this experience, man, where like you're just waiting to have something bleed through. You've been reading a lot of this certain type of book or the certain type of text. So that way what you're writing can represent what you're intaking. And, and the writing just sort of took in a lot of the tension that I was feeling at that point and came out through poetry. Um, and, and these poems just started coming to me, you know? Uh, and so there are songs like called Texas to die uh, songs like Unearthing, uh, another song that's kind of, you know, it's a prettier song, but it's also dealing with some like hard truths called Desperate Crimes. Uh, there's, in this time, there were just lines that came to me that helped me complete a song called Lovers and, and Believers that, you know, it, it, I had that song for years, but I knew it was missing like a, a key bridge phrase to wrap it together. So all these things came together and it seemed to work as a body of material. Um, but I also felt like I was a little radioactive at that point. Like I, was, I sometimes feel like I carry a dark cloud and other people can see that dark cloud. But sometimes that cloud is more conspicuous, I feel like. And I, I felt like it was the most conspicuous cloud I'd ever had follow me at that point. So, you know, when you say like there were hard songs and then there was even harder poetry, you know, it's part of it was like, I'm, I'm going to go bare my soul because this is my night. I'm releasing an album. You don't get very many album release shows in your career as a musician. Mm -hmm. And so if given the opportunity to have a platform where I designed the evening with this material going on, I kind of wanted to juxtapose as well, like, because I open for myself and you got to have some sort of deviation from what you're doing at the next set, you know? And, and what Chisholm does with me is, is, is really exquisite at times. Like I love his fiddle and, and it, I feel like he, uh, he kind of blunts uh, some of my sharp ends. This Chisholm Mills? Chisholm Mills, uh, incredible, uh, fiddle and harp player, man. Um, 
incredible sideman. He's a utility guy. He's excellent. Uh, and he makes me a better player, too. Like, I play with him, and, and the stuff we do back and forth is, is stuff that I really enjoy doing, so I'll play with him any time. Um, we just have, like, a chemistry together, and I really enjoy it, and folks seem to enjoy it, too. Um, yeah, but I, but I would say that I, I, I really wanted to... I think about someone like Towns, and Towns would tell jokes between stuff, but what if Towns just was like, no, man, this shit is true, like, my... My dad really did beat my mom, you know, and she left to Tennessee. And then I, I found a name, friend named Codeine, you know. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of this stuff only hits if you're writing what's true. And uh, so I started writing things like, you know, uh, uh, you know, some of us come to Texas to help the ones we love and some of us come to Texas to die. And I started writing stuff about, you know, uh, the Unearthing song has a line about, about Gaza and hospitals um desperate crimes is saying you know like uh all of those who lose their faith have faith in this i know uncertain times make desperate men uh commit desperate crimes like just and and then the po there's some poetry in there dude that like that like it, it's not even i mean it's like it's only suitable for this dark concept like they're like i have a poem called knife right now that like hmm. is uh is especially startling um, but you, how do you, what do you do with that on its own? It has to be included in a body of work in order to give it context and not have it be so rough landing. If you're prepped for it, then it, it lands better and it's more maximized and impactful. Have you ever considered using some of your poetry on a project, uh, on a record, like well, bookending or in between like transitions using poetry in that way. I've been thinking about that, but I don't know what it would be like to for listeners to just be hanging out on Spotify and have a poetry thing. Like I'm not Saul Williams, you know, like Yeah. I, um I've there's been some successful records, the ones that are the best that they have an instrumental track in the background, so it's not just like spoken word, you know. Right. Um, but that it's also kind of weird and if it's done, you know, I don't know. Sometimes they come across cheesy, depending on how you do it. And so right. it's it's a touchy, touchy subject because I personally love the idea of it. I just wish that there was a way to make it so where it doesn't come across cheesy. That's the main well, thing. You know, I think of something like uh, like the Fuji's record, yeah, uh, where they had these sort of like I think of the Fuji's record, the score, somewhat in the same way that I think of the Grapes of Wrath, uh, because. The Fuji's the score has these little, what they call intercalary chapters in, mm -hmm. in the Grapes of Wrath, where it's just uh, a chapter that's shorter than, but it just prefaces you with a descriptive sort of visual before you enter into the chapter. And I feel like some of the skits that the Fuji's did between songs kind of prepped you for the next song. Mm -hmm. And so I, you're giving me generative ideas on this front. Um, but I would say like I... I, you know, just today I started giving thought to the possibility of a, uh, of a poem book, um, and a, a, like a poem book that would be combined with like some of the photography I do yeah. and, uh, being able to just, I mean, and, and, and the, the kind of angle I was thinking of was like dark, light, blue and brown. So like dark and light being like the, the dark poems and the light being the few really positive poems that I've done and then. Blue being the stuff I have about water, and brown being the stuff I have about elements and canyons and stuff. 
Yeah. Um, but anyway, so it's 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 a little far off. It's just some thoughts I've had about this stuff. But I, you know, there's so many things you can do with this stuff, and not all this stuff has to be songs. And I've always been trying to write solvent poetry anyway. Yeah. And what the best thing about doing that book is, I think Michael O'Connor, we were talking about it with him, is just more merch, more merch to sell, right? Yeah. Um, people want thoughtful merch. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've been toying with an idea. I've got short stories, you know, some of them are short stories that I had transcribed from or trans, I don't know adapted from scripts and then I turn them into a short story yeah. and then I turn those back into scripts that became films it was a weird journey but yeah. I like these short story versions of them I said virgins these <laughs> short story versions of them yeah. and um in between that I have poetry that I've had for years that I've never shown anybody and I'm like yeah maybe there's a way I can do a short story collection with some poetry in between or something right and then I and then more merch and so that's just an idea, you know? It's, yeah, and the merch has to be unique, man. It's like uh, so much of this is a T-shirt hustle now. And uh, I mean, I love unique poetry, or not poetry. I love unique uh, merch. I mean, right. Josh and I have been toying with the idea of making hot sauce. And, um, you know, of course, our whole thing is changing everything to why, yeah, you know, yeah, so. Yeah. Hot sauce? Hot sauce, yeah. But, man, <laughs> I was just thinking about selling hot sauce in upstate New York. Oh, and that's so funny, dude. I'm still in your idiot. No, man, no. Uh, you know, down here, it doesn't really work, I feel like, because, like, everyone's, I mean, like, why would you buy some dude's habanero sauce when, like, you know, it's like, it, this is what we do kind of thing, you know? Uh, I mean, upstate, I felt like these people would go crazy for tomatillo sauce or something. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, man, I just, you know, Whiskey Clear, man, is is a record that, that scared me to release because I just... Oh, yeah, we're here to talk about your... We're here to talk about the record. But the, but the release party, too, man, was stuff that, like... You know, I knew I had to play the record, and I wanted to play the record. Um, but like so many times, whenever I release a record, there's a floodgate of other things that open up. Um, I think the combination of, you know, releasing that record and some of the things that went on in my, uh, you know, happily dysfunctional family, right? Uh, you know, I think I think those two things have really fueled, like, levels of being prolific that I've never encroached before. And I also, I you know, man, I, part of me, I, for just a moment, I got to, like, bitch and complain a little bit. Because as a photographer, man, I really hate seeing, like, iPads out in front of artists. You know, water bottles. Even the little table that you put your, like, harmonicas on that attaches to your, to your uh, mic stand. Like, it's just unsightly when it comes to editing photographs and stuff. It's right. distracting and it's... You know, and and if you're, if you know there's decent photographs going on, man, like, anyway. So and and then the other thing is that you spend your time reading lyrics off of an iPad or something, and it's like people, you got to be singing into a mic and looking out at the crowd to get a good picture. And if you're like always eyes are focused on a small screen, it really takes away from the possibility of images that might be captured, right? Yeah. Um, all that being said, man, I don't usually pull out an iPad or a laptop or lyrics or a notebook because I'm kind of old school. I feel like you got to internalize this stuff and go out and really feel it. And that night I brought a laptop with me and I, I don't ever do that really. And I feel like I'm going to need to be doing that more often now. Well, especially if you're, because you're writing all these brand new songs and if you're going to like basically be debuting the next day at a show, you're going to need something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like this whole, I don't know, era or whatever that I'm in now is like, it's 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 asking me to do things that I normally wouldn't do in that sense, and it's not the end of the world or whatever. But for me, it's like I it's, I'm not someone who ever does that. Um, 
But yeah, so I brought a laptop out that night and I uh, sat in the middle of the audience. And, uh, and this is a place called The Exchange and it's not a listening room. It's not a place on a Tuesday night where people are looking to go in and be attentive and focused and, you know, but I, part of me feels that if you are a performer, especially if you're a solo guy with a guitar, um, you should, you know, you should be able to go in and command a room to the degree that a room is commandable. Uh, some rooms, you know, you can't really do that with, but like, I'm sorry, the cat is where the cat's hanging out, like making noises <laughs> over here, abstracted. Yeah. Harpa makes her appearance. And, uh, and so like what I, what I really wanted to kind of prove as well was that like, that like the exchange in a way could be a place where you could do something like read poetry between songs and, and, I mean, I haven't seen anybody read poetry between songs out here and in and, and especially plus like the, the exchange where there's like pull tables and loudness and and I just I just really wanted to go in and be intense and hold everyone's attention and and show them the 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 sort of bloody mess of new material. Mm-hmm. Um and uh and, and that's what I did. And I think that's why, you know, the staring through you it, it was part of you know, that was part of the process too. And and one has to get oneself in that frame of mind. Like it's, that's not a show that I think I can replicate all the time. Right. Um, I, I think that would be like, I don't know, draining to try to do night over night again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just said, I felt radioactive at that point, man. I felt like, yeah, like, I mean, I was, I felt like I had lost weight and I was a little gaunt, you know? Um, so it was like, it was a show that like, I, I also felt like, I've been talking a lot about kenosis, self-emptying. Uh, kenosis is like a, the, uh, it's a term in Christian theology, and I really wanted to to go and empty myself that night too, and I felt like I did, man, as I almost passed out a couple times a little bit with like just, you know, just being on stage and 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 playing and 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 feeling lightheaded at times, but you know, closing your eyes when you deliver the second verse and losing track of what you're saying mid-syllable, sort of thing. Um, I mean, I just felt like you, you have to do that occasionally to remind yourself of the entire spirit of what we do. So that's, no, I, I just can't imagine you doing that night again. I, you know, it's just, but yeah, no, it sounds like it was a healing night for you and in in a way, at least it was cathartic, cathartic. And I, I don't, you know. And, and and just the beginning of of the night with that intense beginning with the poems and and the brand new songs and it, in and of itself was just a powerful moment and then going in with Chisholm and, and playing uh, the re- the whiskey clear finally you know from yeah did you play it from front to back uh, we played it from front to back but we we snuck a Steve Earle cover in there uh, and uh, the last song I I just don't even remember like. Uh, I, I didn't trust myself to play that song at the time, you know, so I figured I would uh, get off stage and then play some dobro with Garrett for a little bit, you know. Um, and it's, it's part of the challenge, too, is that, like, I'm a songwriter and performer, but I also, like, I I wish to be, like, the sideman to uh, to other players playing dobro, you know, or playing lead and shit. And so, um, and again, it was like, it's my night, I can do what I want. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do the intense set, then we're going to play Whisper Clear. And then I'm just going to play some dobro and hang out, you know, and, and Garrett did a great job and I enjoyed playing with him that night. Um, because after a really intense 
opening set. And then the sort of, you know, the things that happened in Whiskey Clear, I, I felt like what was needed at the end of the night was kind of a quieter, more major, bright sounding uh, act rather than something minor key and, and brooding, you know? Right. So, yeah. So with Whiskey Clear, what, what's, what are your goals? What do you hope to accomplish with the release of this record? Well, first of all, I wanted to say that if you are not in Texas and you make country music and it's Texas country music, Texas doesn't give you the time of day. Um, so part of it was like I was spending a lot of time in New York being like, hey, here's some songs in about Abilene and shit. And people are like, yeah, whatever. Well, now this is uh, the first, you know, release into the Texas country music market. Um, you know, Jeff Canada's had it on his weekly spins on Spotify and got me a lot of spins from there. And I hope just, you know, that people, you know, take the record as like a, as a representation of the authenticity that I have behind the things that I do and the things I put my name on, because, uh, you know, it's not a record that's, uh, nostalgic for some honky tonk noir. That's an affect that I conjured, you know, it's like, these are songs that I wrote very drunk about things that are very hard to face. Uh, and part of the reason why I always write into projects too, man. Like, you know, so I met John Light, pedal steel player after I had finished mountain time. The, the whole thing was like at my mountain time release show, uh, I had two bands come in and play as openers. And one of these bands, like a year prior, I got an email from Reverb Nation that was like, you're number two in the Woodstock, New York, Americana charts. And I'm like, okay, who's number one? And I went into it looking for who was number one, ready to hate whoever that was. <laughs> and uh, so I listened to the first track and I just, I couldn't hate it. I loved it. This guy named John Holt and uh, his band called Hollow Dog. And uh, so I just sent him a message. This guy lived out in the middle of the mountains, no reception or whatever. It'd take like three weeks for him to reply. I'm like, I got a release show on this date. It's like eight months out. I want you to open. And he's like, great, I'll be there. And I didn't talk to him for like another, till it was like two weeks before the show or something. Right. Uh, but anyway, so he showed up and John Light was in his band. And uh, that's how I met John Light. And John Light was like, why are we not doing stuff? And I'm like, yeah, dude, let's do some stuff. And so the first couple jams, I started writing into it. And I'm like, so these songs are written to pair up with like, you know, a classic country sound that a pedal steel brings. Um, so, so when it's like, when you ask, what are my goals for this stuff? Um, you know, I, it's not really that there was a goal. It's just sort of like, I'm trying to, to, to be visible to other country, Texas country music artists and, and things in Texas, you know, yeah. um, because I'm, I'm a lifer. You know, like I'm a guy that's always going to do this. This is what I sound like. These are the instruments I play. These are the things I write about. Um, I also take very seriously the uh, the idea of the Texas Troubadour. And uh, I feel I'm a person that moved to Nashville following, you know, the likes of Steve Earle and Towns Van Zandt and, you know, lived, you know, like Guy Clark, uh, you know, like lived in East Nashville and, and, and studied those guys. And, and I went to New York and, and followed the whole, you know, new folk revival of, you know, like the last record I produced for somebody else was inside the basement of Big Pink. 
Mm. Uh, which for listeners, if you look up the band, uh, their first record, Music from Big Pink, that's a that's a house where the band stayed, where Dylan rehearsed with those guys and they created the basement tapes. And, uh, you know, so I just, I just feel like, like I have with every fiber of my being dedicated my life to keeping, not necessarily keeping alive a tradition of, of the troubadour, but like, it's just who I am. I'm 40 years old, man. This, these are what I, things I found important. And, uh, so if anything, like, I mean, I'm, I'm happy that I recently got a, uh, a quote back from a music critic out of New York, John Burdick, who writes for the Hudson Valley One. And the first line is that, like, I evoke, uh, you know, the likes of, like, uh, Towns and, and Dylan, which is a great quote to have, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of it comes from, like, the darkness of the subject matter, you know, as, as life uh, turns up the heat and becomes more grim, you're able to write the lines that give your songs the affect of like a Hank Williams senior who wouldn't bullshit you with the last line of a second verse sort of thing. You know, he'd just say something like the prospect of a decent life is over or something like I just, <laughs> just no frills, man. Like, and, and it was that Hank Williams processed so much pain through his songs, man, that it's almost like, like Hank Williams sadness in his songs relieves your own sadness and and so that's that's part of what the goal is through this too is that like you know some of these songs are sad but they're not going to affect you in a way that like is going to leave you bummed uh there's a there's a beautiful melody to express horrific truths in, in some of these songs and uh and that's that's really what the goal was was to like communicate some really hard truths and in, in, in beautiful melodies uh, and, and for whatever it's worth, I hope it's doing that, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, I remember early on when we were starting this podcast, it might've been the first episode, mm -hmm. you mentioned that you didn't really start playing out your own stuff or yeah. when did you start writing your stuff? I was writing for the time I was 16, but I was talking about, you didn't start performing that until you're about 30. So you had all this time writing it and just keeping it like and wherever. Yeah. 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 Um when do you think it started changing over to where it wasn't so shitty? Oh man. And um I mean I you can tell you about it, dude. Yeah. Even still, like with me personally, it's just with each new song I'm like, that's less shitty or that's less shitty yeah, unless yeah, you know, know that's the yeah. journey, right? And but when when did you notice like, all right, this song Finally, I, I'm, I'm okay with taking this out of the bedroom and yeah, showing somebody. Um, well, you know, uh, I would say that the first sort of foyer out into performing and taking things I had written into the live realm came with this band called Ellie Yeah. Uh, and it was just a trio situation. I went to the studio and did some overdubs and it's, uh, it's not a good sounding thing, you know. Um, but I would say that Oh, there's a El Yeah album on Spotify. There is an El Yeah album, E L Y E A H. There's no monthly listeners, and I don't talk about it. Right, bring it up here just to show. be one. I listened to it. I right, you mentioned right. it on the podcast. Right. I was like, what the hell is this? I looked at it. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's like a five song record that I did with those guys, and uh, but but the you know, I basically like my twenties were spent in Nashville, and I. 
you know, I, I'll say this and not self-aggrandize, but I went there to be an engineer. I got a job working at Reba McIntyre studio. Um, I got my name inside of a couple records and, uh, and, and it just wasn't paying me enough. And I got out of Reba's place and went uh, freelance for a while. And, uh, and then I met a girl who was a writer and she asked me to help her create some demos for a publishing deal. And, uh, and I made the classic error of sleeping with the artist as she was gorgeous. And, uh, that ended up being like a seven year relationship, um, which was a lot of me writing with her. Um, but also just a ton of me recording her and those projects never saw the light of day. Uh, she is a wonderful perfectionist, but a terrible completionist. Um, and uh, when that relationship dissolved in Woodstock, I moved to the next town over, which is Saturdays, and I found myself in the middle of a New York winter staring at, you know, an SG on my wall, a Telecaster on my wall, a Taylor guitar on my wall, a studio with like Vintech pre's and nice converters and stuff, man. And I didn't have any of my own records. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really kind of had like a woodshed moment with myself. And I sat there and I'm like, are you a collector or are you an artist? Mm -hmm. And I felt like there was always a, a concealment of my art or desire to be an artist because I always wish to present myself as an engineer and producer and someone who cares after the projects of others rather than is self-involved in their own. Uh, because to a certain degree, some producers are simply frustrated artists. Right. Um, and then, you know, I, I, so I made that LDI record. I uh, got tired of carrying a band around. Um, and then I sat down and I was like, you know, man, you're not even using your name as like to, as a stamp of what this product is. And I was like, maybe you got to use your name. And I was about 31 at this point, 32. And I was like, not only do you got to use your name, but if you use your name, the caliber of songs you required to write, especially as a debut, especially if you wish to present as an, as a producer. Uh, these songs have to be, I mean, I don't think the songs on, I'm looking back now on Mountain Time, I was just thinking the other day about how the songs on Whiskey Clear are much more personal, they're much more vulnerable, they're much more uh, telling truths about life. Whereas I think necessarily Mountain Time, because I was looking to flex a multi-instrumentalist ego, mm -hmm. those songs are not as, the, the depth is not there, I feel like. Right. I feel like I was writing in order to, feel like I was vulnerable, but also be cool. You know, it also come across as like someone who, I think about someone like Jacob Dylan, who could be vulnerable, be cool when he did it. When, when he says stuff like, they used to call me the bleeder. It's like, wow, he's talking about vulnerability, but it's the way he says it is so cool. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it shifted after that LEI record because I realized I need to stamp my name on stuff. And so I did this alone solo record, just a live record at uh, at Rockford Music Hall, which is on Spotify and stuff. Um, but I would say that it really shifted then when I had that kind of come to Jesus moment of like, are you a player or are you a collector? And are you a writer? And when are you going to write these songs? You know, um, but everything has to happen so that you can get to the next thing. So I feel like all this stuff, like I don't know that I'd be writing the things right now if I had not released Whiskey Clear. And so I'm just thankful that whatever writing floodgates are open right now for me, you know. Do you think your writing process has been distilled down to, uh, you know, a certain 
I guess, not formula, but, you know, before you were trying out all these different things and now you know how the the best way to tell the truth. Yeah, in a way, man, it's like these songs are zipping together more efficiently, whereas before I might have had problems finding a rhyme for a word or something like that. I can, you know, mutate the line to a certain degree to facilitate the completion of the song without without using throwaway lines. And there's certain themes that have emerged through my stuff, you know, like uh, there, there's turn of phrases that happen in the last verse now, or there's, uh, there's, there's, you know, like I have this whole theme of sirens and, and, and stuff. Uh, so yeah, like, I think it's, it's synthesized with a little more ease at this point. And I think yeah. there is certainly like characteristics that are signatures of my writing now. Um, and in a way, it's almost like I get to look at myself and my writing for the first time now that I recognize these emerging themes and emerging sort of consistencies from song to song. It's almost like I'm getting to view myself as the songwriter with discernible characteristics rather than this sort of vagueness that, that comes from maybe not writing small enough, yeah. not writing enough songs. I know, like me personally, I started as a songwriter like extremely personal all my songs were extremely personal and vulnerable and people uh, I, certain people in my life were like stop doing that just write fun songs and I, and so i got pissed off and wrote a fun song just like a basically as a as a fuck you and then that ended up becoming my most popular song which pissed me off even more yeah but i went because of that, I went down this this journey for a long time of writing vague songs, the songs that really didn't mean much, right? And I released a couple records with nothing but vague songs on them. And, you know, then I've been on this long journey back to, you know, like really coming into the personal and writing more personal. And, and also just, I don't know about you, but starting this podcast has really helped. Um, yeah. And, I mean, if, for selfish reasons, I never want this podcast to end because I just love having these long-form conversations with other songwriters or other people in the business and getting their their perspective on things and their perspective on writing or whatever. And it just it, it just makes me think outside of the box, think outside of myself, and 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 understand a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, man. This little this little podcast has been a joy and a delight, and uh, and I've really enjoyed getting to, to know all the, the characters we've had on. Um, and it's, you know, it helps me reflect on my own writing process. And, uh, and you know, oftentimes I'm asking questions selfishly around like my own process, trying to find something. And I hope, you know, listeners seem to, to, to gain something from that, which is great because otherwise I'd just be an asshole asking questions on a podcast about my own writing process, right? Um, but yeah, man, uh, the, the whole journey back to writing something personal, um, you know, what I've seen emerge out of my writing, the, the, the greatest theme, the biggest theme that I've seen emerge out of the, the stuff that I've written is I feel like I am writing for a, like a brotherhood of men who have lost beloved women. And, uh, and the more that I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I said earlier, I'm 40, you know, there's like a, you know, Dante wrote the Divine Comedy when he was 40. I talked a lot about Dante and the sort of midlife journey that we're on in a, a grim dark forest and stuff like that um so it really hits home and uh 
you know, that this will, I, 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 I would just say I, I lost my train of thought here. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so what I've seen emerge is like the, the whole brotherhood of, of men of lost beloved women. And, and I've also seen emerge this sort of like theme of like, like as a man, you're always trying to, I mean, you should be anyway, you should be trying to increase your, your, your gentleness of your affect. I feel like, mm -hmm. um, I feel like it's the responsibility of men to shed their monstrousness, even if they're not monsters, which you're not, but like, you know, you're bigger, you're scary, your voice is deeper. Uh, there's statistics that show that like, we all kind of have these propensities, right? And it's this sort of darker nature to humanity. Uh, because it's a crooked timber, like according to Isaiah Berlin, he calls it the crooked timber, crooked timber of humanity, you know? And, uh, and so I think about the, 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 the complexities of, uh, the, the, the sort of brief moments of, of, of intimacy and the, uh, that's the word I'm looking for here. Like the, uh, the acrimony of like separation and all the, 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 the various complexities of human relationships, you know? Um, and, uh, and, and so I, part of it is like, you know, I was writing a song about, like I keep comparing women to birds or using birds as like, uh, and, and so part of it is like, you know, I've had songs like what makes a bird and, 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 uh, what if I said we could be birds, but I wrote something recently about, uh, like a yellow throated juvenile in the palm of my hand and she panicked for a second. She ain't been held by a man. And it's just, you know, like how does one carry oneself in the world meaning to do no harm, but knowing this is the crooked timber and that, you know, we just, we just, no, none of us are, are, are arrows straight, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, so those are the things that, that, and, and, I read a lot of philosophy and shit, man. So like the stuff no. I write is always deep. No, you don't. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know, man. I just, I, I, I have to keep pen on the page and I have to see what comes out. And sometimes it's two or three a day now. And I can hear the chords already mm -hmm. when I'm writing the stuff. And so it's not like I need to take great care to document the music that accompanies these things. But I feel more like a poet these days because the stuff I'm writing uh, it has an ease of construction to it that it, it works as spoken word as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, fuck, I mean, right. <laughs> and I've had people tell me to stop cussing on this podcast, but I'm, I, and here I go. I just, I, I think I'm the only one that's cussed this entire episode. No, I knew it was a couple of times. But uh, ride that, that wave, wave as much as you can. I mean, those words will eventually stop. Yeah, I mean, hopefully they don't, but they'll they'll eventually stop, and you'll be digging for them again. But man, ride the, that wave. I mean, be plugged in, stay plugged in as long as you can. Um, yeah, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. So, uh, so I recently wrote like, you know, the song, man. Uh, I've written a few songs, like like a song called uh, "The Woods Will Take Back," another song called "Monsters." Uh, uh, you know, the, the whole monsters theme is like, you know, uh, you know, I, I, it appears that I'm a monster. I've got claws. I've got teeth. Never seen this side of me. And it seems as if I've scared you. You don't need to run and hide because if you get rid of all the monsters, you'll have no people in your life. Sort of lyrics about the way that people contain both sides of this stuff, right? And then the whole thing about the yellow-throated the, the yellow juvenile thing. 
um, is like there's there's just rough edges, man. Not just not just men and masculinity, but people in general. I, I just just rough, untreated edges that like just come with us. And uh, and uh, and so part of like whiskey clear is carried over into into more sort of overt symbolism. Mm-hmm. Uh, smaller writing uh, that have more vivid details, uh, more of an elaborate story being weaved, I feel like, out of, um, is, is where I got to with, with Whiskey Clear. And I'm just trying to take that those aspects and tease out more of them. Uh, because I think that's, you know, when I listen to, to songs like Waiting Around to Die, I mean, there's a whole story of a, of a person's life contained there. Uh, Poncho and Lefty has, you know, three different characters, and 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 even the Federale uh, is like a person. You know, all the great Federales are all the gray, G R A Y gray Federales, and they're like older, sort of law enforcement types. You know, it just gives such uh, the imagery that provides uh, is just something that like I, I aspire to do, and so I, in some ways, I feel like I've, I've done that a lot of that in Whiskey Clear. Um, but you can always get better. You can always tell more intricate stories. And, and, and I think that I'm getting better at presenting the darker material that comes out of me because I'm more mature as an artist. Mm. So I can show these works in such a way, like you mentioned at the release show, that they're presented as art, whereas I feel like if you're a young artist and these are the materials that you've written, you're going to scare people. You know, like you're going to come into this with like, if your material is, is startling, you will startle people. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that is part of your overall brand, if that is what you bring, and that's that's kind of what I'm trying to get to as well, is like so, bringing that, you know, you're in a place where you're okay to scare people, to startle people. Right, right. Or that people wish to be startled in some way in the same way you go on roller coasters or something, you know? Um, it's like, uh, you know, I, I forget who said it, but somebody said something like when people go to a show, they don't want to see like a neighbor on stage. They, they want to see like a space alien. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and to a certain degree, that's like, that's what artists are meant to do is to sort of disturb the comfortable and, and present in such a way that, you know, I came down here, I felt like I, was a little visually inadequate. I felt like I was wearing sneakers the first show I played, you know, and I haven't worn sneakers at a show since. I'm wearing boots and a hat and all that shit, right? Um, part of it is reclaiming and, you know, coming on to Texas, right? But hey, you're not a true uh, Corpus Christian until you're wearing flip-flops on stage. Right, I haven't bought a Magellan shirt yet, <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, yeah, I can't do the, the wraparound sunglasses and the, the Salt Life stuff, dude. I can't do it, dude. It was so funny, man. The band that was on at uh at K Triple I that day when we did uh Domingo, uh they all I mean they the band was all dressed the same, but I thought it was an incredibly corpus Christian to to have them all wearing matching red Magellan shirts. I'm not even sure that band was from Corpus, to be honest. <laughs> Whatever, you know, I don't man, that's hilarious. So they would have fit in here, you know. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's a, there's a vibe here for sure. But um Yeah, man. I will say to you that like going back to the beginning here with like self-production, I tend to, you know, I do a lot of different things, right? I, I, I depending on what needs to come out, like uh, if there's uh, a few paragraphs on 
something that happens in the news or if there's an interview that I want to make public in a speaking or written form. Like there's a lot that I do. And, uh, and I'm really thankful that people take the stuff in. But part of what I want them to know is that there's like, if, if you all appreciate the depths of anything that I write, it, it comes from like a plethora of different lenses by which to view things, right? So um, just because we're getting towards the end of the, the end of the podcast, I'll say that I, I'll take a minute to describe some of the, the other projects that I take part in. Uh, so obviously the Corpus Christi Songwriter Podcast, I'm here with that. Uh, the main podcast that I produce though is called Working People. And all we do is talk to working people. And part of that uh, is, you know, constantly speaking to people whose stories do not often chance, uh, oftentimes get a chance to be heard, uh, speaking to union members about unsafe working conditions and the brutality of their day in, day out life. And so for me, a lot of my ethics come up from Marxism. Uh, a lot of my chief disvalue, I would say, is like exploitation. And I think it's an intolerable tension to, to know that we have people in our lives that are irreplaceable, and yet they will predictably be treated by the market, if you will, and employers uh, as, you know, replaceable at best and disposable at worst. It should be an intolerable tension to hold those two things side by side. And so on the Working People podcast, uh, we speak to working people and allow them to speak to their story all the way up from like where they grew up, uh, all the way to why their working conditions suck and what needs to be improved and why unions are important. Right. So that's the Working People podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a, a podcast that goes dormant, but gets active every now and then called No Easy Answers. And that's where I just talk to people about philosophy, politics, human condition, Marxism, stuff like that. It largely functions off of what piques my interest at the time. And then I just, uh, you know, it'll be out by the time we publish this podcast, but I just completed the first uh, two episodes of a podcast called The Labor Link, uh, which is uh, basically a, a podcast where the host, Judy Gearhart, traveled to South Asia to interview exploited South Asian fishermen in Thailand, Cambodia, and Ind Indonesia, and working on further episodes in Ghana and Mexico. Uh, and that's done through American University and the Accountability Research Center. Um, so I, I, I say all that because like, I'm editing stuff in Burmese. Not that I can speak Burmese, but like, the, you know, you have to have the spot translator behind the person they're interviewing. Yeah. And so a lot of the things I've spent time listening to are, are stories from fisher people who, you know, were thrown overboard and shot and lived and joined a union. And now they are, are, are organizing to, to make better their working conditions. Um, those are the podcasts that I run. And I also have a couple of them that are concealed that are still be working towards releasing as well. When I write, man, it's, it's from, it's from a very scaled up and a very micro, small and personal sort of thing. Um, because I really, I, I, I started writing the songs that were intentional that I could put my name on when I started taking seriously the news and, and trying to resonate with the suffering of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that turned me into a communist, you know. That turned me into a <laughs> socialist that <laughs> set me far left of Bernie. 
And, uh, you know, so here I am. And a lot of my ethics come through in my music in terms of the humanity I try to impart. So, all right. Well, it's been fun turning the, you know, the mic around or the lens around on one of our hosts and getting to know you a little bit more. Uh, not that we haven't gotten to know you with your philosophical tangents that you've had over the uh, the last few months, but it's been an interesting ride tonight. Um, you know, we'll do this from time to time with each of us, I'm sure. Yeah. We, you know, deep dive into each of us as a co-host and, and uh, what we're about. And it's been interesting getting to know what Jules is about a little bit more than what's, than, you know. I appreciate you letting me talk about myself for a while. <laughs> you know, uh, you do it well. You, t- you talk about yourself. I'm <laughs> just, but, um, but yeah, in, in general, uh, Whiskey Clear, where, where can, uh, a listener find that? Man, it's out, uh, at all the various places, streaming services, however you get your music. It's on YouTube. Um, you can also find it at my website, which is julestaylormusic.com. And, uh, if you, uh, if you wanted to see all the stuff I do, I have a centralized link that has links to my website and music and all that stuff. Um, that is at allmylinks.com forward slash real Jules Taylor. Um, and that'll take you just a, a place where you can like, you know, you can look at my website, music, uh, podcast links, you, you know, it's got Venmo and Cash App stuff on there. So it's what I do for people that shows to, you know, kind of just give them everything. And it's, it's a bit overwhelming. I feel like there's so much. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, before we end, you know, we usually I end with yeah. uh, the question, what do you love about music? Um, we, we've already answered the question, so I'm not going to answer that question again. Um, but instead, I'm going to ask you to give me your your favorite or the best philosophical quote that you can think of on the spot right now. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, since it runs with a theme, uh, I'll tell you that I really don't like Marcus Aurelius. Um I think he has a low opinion of his fellow man. I think he was a bit arrogant, and I don't believe that he was uh, not in the same way vulnerable uh, to temptation, desire, bad decisions, misfortune that other men were, right? But he has this quote that I have really, you know, certain philosophical quotes stick out at me, and not as like something as like a, it's not a rose along your path. It's more of a, a pebble in your shoe. And the pebble in my shoe lately has been... Uh, a quote from Marcus Aurelius. He says, uh, are you weary of the bad men of the world? Are you really weary of the bad men of the world? Because the gods aren't, and they made them. Are you really weary of the bad men of the world, especially considering you are one of them? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, I don't know, man. I, I'm with Spinoza on, you know, the last part of his ethics, man, where he, he, he speaks to, you know, increasing one's panatus, which is like the, 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 the will to exist, the, the, the spirit of existence, the, the force of, of, of the existing of a person and maximizing your kanatus. And, uh, and through that, one must be moral. And I believe that the purpose of morality is to make one eligible for happiness. Um, so when I hear Marcus Aurelius trying to, condemn all of us to being bad men of the world given all the things on writing about trying to increase one's gentleness trying to make everyone feel to a degree safer around you than they already do um 
strongly disagree with Marcus. And uh, he's rising up the, the ranks of philosophers I'd like to to fight if given the opportunity, you know. <laughs> so there's, there's Plato in there, there's Heidegger, you know, but Marcus Aurelius has been on my thoughts lately. Wow. All right. Well, there's a spot to leave it. Uh, until next time, uh, Jules, thanks, thanks for hanging out. Thank you, Jimmy. All right. I used to write down my dreams In a little red book I kept beside my bed And every morning when I woke up I'd scribble down the thoughts inside my sleepy head so long but I remember every word you said said dreamers need a dream like a poet needs to rhyme but ain't no way to live if you're always chasing one more line chasing one more line Jason.